Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, July 26th, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 41, verses 1 to 18. Ishmael executes his murderous plot against the Babylonian-appointed governor Gedaliah, and hopes of a peaceful resolution for the remnant in Judah fade even further. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Always good to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Johnson, let's refresh our memories with the context. As we were visiting earlier, this is one of those sections of the scriptures that's probably pretty unfamiliar, a portion of the biblical history that we don't often get into that immediate aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem. So remind right. us. This a, is never on the Sunday school that's curriculum. Right. Right? That's right. So remind us where we are in, in the middle of that account. Right. So the immediate context is, you know, and it's the chapter divisions a little bit, um, you know, of an imposition on all this. And so it's kind of a real continuous story. So, you know, Jerusalem has fallen and the Babylonians have, uh, like you mentioned earlier, already set up a, a puppet governor. Um, uh, although, I mean, I don't know how much freedom he's actually given and, and he doesn't seem to be, you know, nefarious or anything like that. But, um, but Gedaliah is his name. And so he's, uh, you know, he's the governor over, uh, over Judah and there's apparently this uh, this plot by uh, you know by a member of the royal house who's fled by the name of Ishmael, and he's he's off in uh, in Ammon. Now the Ammonites have been you know kind of problematic for uh, for Israel for a while. It's it's kind of like if you're if you're not uh, for us, you're automatically against us. And so uh, so apparently Ishmael has some kind of relationship with the uh, the, the king of the Ammonites, and um, and he. And the king of the Ammonites, uh, Baalus, if I'm pronouncing that name right, is he sends Ishmael back to uh, to kill uh, Gedaliah. But it specifically says that Gedaliah would not believe him. So, in other words, they even had he had, you know, his his FBI or his CIA, you know, report to him that uh, this assassination attempt was afoot. And he says, no, 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 it couldn't, it couldn't possibly be. Gedaliah apparently can't believe it. Now, it's not clear why he doesn't believe it, whether he, you know, he just thinks too, you know, he's too trusting or whether he's naive. We, we aren't entirely clear about that. Um, but, but he doesn't think that Ishmael is going to do this. Um, and so we're, we're right on the cusp as we get into uh, to Jeremiah 41. We know that there's this plan to assassinate him, and we're waiting to see if it's all going to get carried out. Right. It does kind of pick up right in the middle of the story. And as you said, where we left off in the previous text, Gedaliah has heard that there's this plot out there. And Johanan, one of the one of the captains of the, the army, among the others, he has told Gedaliah this story and it's been corroborated by a lot of the people. And like you said, for whatever reason, Gedaliah doesn't believe it, which, as we're going to see today, leads to his downfall. As, a, as we look at, at this text just as a whole... 
what what's your impression of the the whole of the text? I mean, we're in that section of scripture, as we said, that it, we're a little less familiar with. W- what kinds of things are we going to encounter? What do we do with a, a text where I think the word you used before when we were talking prior to the show is it's a disordered. What do we do with texts like this? Right. I mean, in some ways, this is almost easier to deal with because I think when we get to the Old Testament, oftentimes we, we want to read it like they're all good examples for us, right? You know, we should just, we, we should be just like so-and-so, right? We should be like Abraham, trusting like Abraham. But then you get into problems with like, well, what about like Jacob and Esau when Jacob basically backstabs his own brother? Are we supposed to be like him? You know, are we supposed to be like David who ends up, you know, uh, having an affair? And uh, it's so obvious, you know, there's an a lot of obvious problems with, you know, the, the, the quote unquote heroes of the faith. Um, you know, it, I shouldn't say that there's problems with them. There's problems when we try to read them almost like they're Aesop's fables, like be like this person, don't be like that person. It's often more complicated. But in some ways, this is much easier. It, this is a disaster. <laughs> I mean, this is just, um, you know, this is just absolute chaos. And I think one of the larger theological points we need to keep in mind is um, when, when humanity goes off the rails, you know, when the Lord says go this way and they go the opposite way, um, this is what happens. It's chaos. It's disorder. The Lord has ordered the world to run in a certain way. And we see those things reflected in the good commands he gives us. Um, and when we don't follow them, everything falls apart. People are getting murdered and there's going to be people who are, who are taken captive and other people have to, uh, to, you know, to go and flee. And there's, you know, and there's, uh, you know, there's butchering and there's all kinds of other horrible stuff. Um, you know, and so in case we ever were tempted to think that anarchy is actually a good way to run the world, it's definitely not, you know, blesses the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can almost kind of see that passage from Psalm one sort of playing out right in front of us. So, yeah, I, I think your point about a text like this is almost easier. I think, I think you're right because seeing just the absolute chaos that we will see in this text today and that we've already started to see in the previous chapter of Jeremiah, it, it's so easy. I think clear what's gone wrong and and we're pretty easy. We're usually, I think able to identify what went wrong in a case like this, when we're looking at it from afar, I think that helps us then when those same wrong things, maybe in, in smaller ways, at least at the beginning, start to show up in our own lives. A text like this allows us to see just the full blown ugly picture in hopes that we'll actually take a look and, and turn the mirror upon ourselves to look for those things where, well, where, where is my attitude? Say like these people in this text who have gone all, completely off the rails, right? hopefully to avoid going off the rails and catch it right at the, the very beginning. Yeah. But the one temptation I think we have though, is always to, uh, to see these people as completely other than ourselves. I mean, they're, they're like, oh, well, <laughs> these guys are such disasters, right? We would never do that. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, looking to assassinate anybody. And so I think that's also the temptation is that we would, we would see how extreme this is and fail to see, uh, fail to see ourselves in it. Um, but, but you're right with a little bit of self-reflection, we can actually see, you know, when we are looking to maybe, no, we're not looking to, uh, you know, to assassinate the guy who lives next door, but we're, 
we're not exactly looking to tell him the truth or to, uh, you know, to get, I don't know, maybe he's got a car for sale or something like that. Uh, you know, and we're trying to, uh, you know, we're trying to make sure that we get the absolute best deal rather than actually dealing honestly with him. Um, you know, it's critical that we be able to see the, the more, you might call, say, quote unquote, mild versions of these, the same kind of disorder you know, reflected in our own lives. Yeah, exactly. And and two, to, to keep in mind the root cause of all this, which perhaps right. is, is easy to forget in a chapter like this, where we're going to be focusing on some pretty gory stuff. But to remember, how did they get to this place to the, in the beginning? It was not listening right. to the word of the Lord, not listening to Jeremiah, such that what the Lord said would happen has happened. Jerusalem has been destroyed. But to take it back to that root cause, I think is, is so important to keep our, our minds you know, fixed there as well, that we don't lose sight of, well, how did they get here in the first place? That's, that's really important as well. Right, right. So let's see what happens here in Jeremiah chapter 41. Again, we're picking it kind of in the, the middle of the account. Gedaliah has been warned that Ishmael is coming. So we're now in 41 verse one. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with 10 men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam at Mizpah. As they ate bread together there at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and the 10 men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. When they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were 10 men among them who said to Ishmael, do not put us to death for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he had struck down along with Gedaliah was the largest cistern that King Asa had made for defense against Basha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites." And that was through verse 10 of chapter 41. So lots of uh, brutal details here, Pastor right. Johnson. Take us into just the, we've, we've had this set up for us in the previous chapter. Here comes the, the main thing. Ishmael assassinates Gedaliah. Take us into the, just those first two verses where that, that happens. Right. So he's got this all uh, planned out in the seventh month. Um, I believe this is a, uh, when they've got one of the, uh, the harvest festivals is, uh, is coming up, that's going to become an important detail later. Um, you know, but so he comes in, uh, you know, with, uh, with 10 men, you know, sort of the assassination party. And it seems that it seems to be implied that Gedaliah is not at all prepared for this, even though he knows by name, the, uh, you know, that Ishmael's the one who is supposed to have this uh, assassination plot. But, um, but you notice, I mean, it's the, 
It's the height of backstabbery, if I can call it that, because it says as they ate bread together there at Mizpah. Um, and so here they are. They're sharing the most intimate form of fellowship, which I think we can kind of understand here. I mean, it, you know, it's one thing for, you know to be involved in like a drive-by shooting. Um, you know, like if you heard this on the news, you'd say, "Oh, well, that's really sad. Were they targeting that person, or what? Were was were they a you know an innocent bystander?" But if you heard that there was like some mass assassination, you know, at a dinner club somewhere in the city, um, you would know that like that doesn't just happen by accident. These things are you know these are clearly planned out, and it's really the height of treachery as well, because especially in the ancient Near East, even more so than today. To sit down at table with somebody was to was to show a certain level of trust and intimacy that basically Ishmael used to his advantage in order to get the, uh, the jump on Gedali and uh, and the people there. So I mean, it's really this is really this isn't just killing. This is absolute murder. I mean, this is this is the uh, the on the most despicable level. Right. That phrase of uh, the way Jeremiah phrases it there, that they were eating bread together there at Mizpah, I think stands out in the account, as you said, just the height of betrayal to, I mean, given the way Gedaliah has refused to believe that Ishmael's plotting against him, and, and we don't know this for sure, but it seems that he's got some level of respect for him or or thinks he's got some sort of decent reputation, enough so that he's willing to share a meal with him. And it does seem to go beyond just the the regular sort of constraints of what hospitality would have been like. There seems to be right. some sort of friendship or, or at least level of trust on Gedaliah's part. And, yeah. and the way that it's phrased, you know, about eating bread together, which is simply a way of, of phrasing, I suppose, but it, it really recalls some of the other places in scripture where we see the theme of betrayal. The one, the one that comes to my mind is from Psalm 41 in verse mm-hmm. nine, you know, where David prays, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So we we see this in the account of, of Gedaliah being assassinated by Ishmael. And, and this is really a, a recurring thing that happens in the scriptures is that people get betrayed. And, and of course, I think when we read these things as Christians, our minds go to Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Right. Now, I don't think that we would see what happens here as, as what we sometimes called a type. That That is, you know, we're meant to see like somehow Gedaliah standing for Christ or this is a but at the same time it is a pattern that's established we see betrayal throughout the scriptures and maybe the mystery of it is that it shows up in the the plan of salvation that our Lord Jesus Christ right. goes through so I mean Pastor Johnson just I've kind of said quite a bit thrown several thoughts out there help me to, to kind of tie some of those thoughts together with the betrayal we're seeing here in Jeremiah 41 and how that applies on a law lo- a larger biblical scale yeah, right, right. I mean, in some ways, you're you're addressing, you know, like we were talking about before, you know, some of the uh, some of the ways that we read the Bible, and yeah, it would it would be, I think, inappropriate, um, you know, to say, well, you know, this guy stands for Jesus, and this, you know, uh, so so Gedaliah stands for Jesus, and Ishmael stands for Judas. I think that's that's inappropriate. But I think on the flip side, we don't need to be so cautious as to kind of like miss these ongoing themes is a bit like, you know, kind of like in a, uh, in a symphony, when you have a theme and then variants on that same theme, you can recognize that, you know, well, there are differences, but you still, you get used to those kinds of patterns in your ear. And that's kind of how the scriptures, I think, often work. Um, 
And we see kind of this pattern pick up again. Uh, there's a certain, you know, innocence, I think, to get Eliah that's that's implied in all of this. Now, whether or not, you know, you might say, well, he was a fool for trusting in this. But on the other hand, you also might call it something noble. And so it makes you really wonder, well, what kind of, you know, was this a, how much did get Eliah, how much should he have known? And in some ways, was he only, was he going ahead with all of this, you know, you might say like a lamb led to the slaughter. It makes you, of course, really think about how then Jesus went, you know, to the Lord's Supper fully aware. In fact, well, he went into Jerusalem fully aware that Judah was actually, or I'm sorry, that uh, Judas was going to betray him. And yet, like you said, he full well knew that this was actually part of, uh, you know, of God's plan. You know, he, as he says, you know, that, it, uh, you know, that it was actually foretold that, uh, you know, that the Son of Man must be betrayed, but woe to the one by whom he was betrayed. And so we see in this, uh, you might say an echo of what Jesus himself is going to do that, I mean, think about this. It's one thing to be, to step into a betrayal and then be surprised to it. It's a very different thing to walk into a betrayal knowing that you're going to be betrayed but that it would ultimately be for the good of those who would stab you in the back. And once again, that's where a lot of this breaks down. I mean, I don't think Edeliah necessarily had any notion that this would somehow be for the betterment of Judah or anything like that. Sure. But it does, but it makes you, it makes you think ahead though. Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, Gedaliah, the way that he behaves in, in 40 and 41 comes off I, I think is mostly foolish that you know mm-hmm. he he knows what's going to happen he's told what's going to happen and he it, I mean you just don't get the sense from the text that that he's doing this on purpose for the greater good but rather just mm-hmm. sort of absent-mindedly almost in denial kind of thing and and right. such that the whole event comes off as is quite tragic we talked a little bit about this in the previous text that Gedaliah is one of the quote good guys being from the family of Shaphan we've seen how that mm-hmm. family helped Jeremiah at various stages in his ministry and so to for all of this to happen Gedaliah looks like a very foolish tragic figure I think that when you're looking at that that theme that gets repeated and I like the comparison you made to a symphony Within the scriptures of this betrayal, the the surprising thing, the amazing thing, maybe the gracious thing, is that Jesus and, and the way you described him is, was perfect. He knowingly goes into that betrayal. He he takes what otherwise looks like a just a tragic, ugly event, and he makes use of that for the sake of of saving the whole world, and including the people that betrayed him, the people that put him there on the cross. And I think that's the the amazing thing about what Jesus does and how whatever you know tragedy sad event that we've got here in jeremiah 41 it the fact that it shows up in the story of salvation in the gospels though the way it does is just all the more amazing miraculous and and gracious on the part of our lord right yeah he's uh he is how how would i put this um jesus is no gedaliah right i mean he's he's infinitely more um and yet he suffers he suffers the the disgrace of Gedaliah in some ways, but far more mm. and still, and yet he, uh, he is still merciful. I mean, you know, you think about anybody who, if anybody had a reason, you know, to, uh, you know, flex his divine muscles and get back at everybody. I mean, it was certainly Christ, but I mean, he's the one who, who's 
capable of doing that and yet resists that temptation. So let, let's keep working our way through the the events of Jeremiah chapter 41. So Ishmael's taken care of Gedaliah. He's got these 10 men with him who's taking care of them. I mean, he's, they're a part of it. You, seems Ishmael's expecting some pushback, but doesn't really get a whole lot, it seems. But what else does he do in addition to killing Gedaliah? Yeah, so he um, he apparently takes captive. Um, well, actually, uh, yeah, it says he, he t- takes captive. What? Um, where was this? I've lost my place. I thought it... Uh, that comes oh, yeah, toward no, it the says, end, right? Yeah, of the right, section, no, no, verse 10. Right, right. It's the captives. It's the, uh, it's verse three. It says he also struck down all the Judeans right. who are, who are with Gedali and, and Mizpah. Now, I think that's a bit of a, you know, either hyperbole or some other, um, uh, you know, figure of speech in that obviously he didn't kill the entire population because there are obviously people who are left who, who he actually takes captive. But I think this means something like, you know, these, this is like, uh, Gedaliah's inner court or his, you know, or his bodyguard or whoever it might've been who were, who were literally with him, like in his entourage. And so he doesn't just kill Gedaliah, but also, you know, anybody who is, who is, you know, associated with him. And it says, and the Chaldeans who happened to be there, Chaldeans, of course, being Babylonians. Um, and so it, I would guess something like, you know, uh, Gedaliah and the garrison that was, you know, that was there, which really does say something these uh these 10 guys must have been number one pretty capable but also number two ruthless as well i mean you know he's, they're not just looking to do this targeted assassination they're going to take out they're going to take out all you know all possibility of uh you know of uh you know uh you know babylonian uh influence here in uh in judah that's i think what they're really going for i mean it's it's a pretty it's a pretty stark picture that we're getting here already and again probably not too long after jerusalem has fallen there's maybe a little bit of ambiguity there as to you mentioned you know the seventh month is this the seventh month like three months after the fall of jerusalem that was talked about in jeremiah 39 or is this a later seventh month there's some ambiguity there but right and the text just doesn't specify whether it's the same year or not right but but in that, I mean, not long after the fall of Jerusalem, there's already these varying, you know, roving bands of soldiers sort of jockeying for position, already rebelling against the Babylonian appointed puppet government. It's a, a pretty striking picture that this level of, like you used the word anarchy earlier, that's already started to to unravel itself here in the land of Judah. It, and it, it's only going to get worse. I think ruthless is a good word for Ishmael and his men. As we see what continues to happen, you get these 80 men who come from, and it specifies the cities, Shechem, yeah. Shiloh, and Samaria. So take us into this next event that reveals more of who this Ishmael is. Yeah, so this is one of the other reasons why I'm thinking this is all happening around one of the uh, uh, one of the pilgrimage festivals, because here we, we have some pilgrims coming from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria. If, and if you recall... Those are, uh, you know, those are the locations of, um, those were the traditional locations of worship up in, in Israel, the northern kingdom. And so, you know, here we've got, we've got northerners coming down, uh, which is kind of remarkable in and of itself. And, uh, you know, it, it mentions that they've got, you know, shaved beards and torn clothing and gashes. You know, they've, these are all indications of mourning and repentance and which i think impresses upon us that these they're not these are serious pilgrims you know these are not just 
you know, um, these aren't people who just on a whim decided like, Hey, let's go down to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer, uh, you know, to offer sacrifices. I mean, have they even heard that the temple has been destroyed at this point? Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, but, but it's pretty clear that these are very pious individuals. And it says if they bring grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And uh, so these are, these could also be, you know, the particular prescribed sacrifices, um, you know, for whatever uh, pilgrimage festival they're actually going to. Um, but the thing is too, I mean, they're not military folks. These are, you know, these are pilgrims. And, uh, and so this is how dastardly Ishmael is, uh, you know, he and his group of men that, you know, they come out uh, to meet him. And, and this is, I mean, the guys are, he is a real crook here. He comes out weeping as he came. Now, um, you, first question you want to ask is, well, why is he crying? Um, it's, I'm guessing it's probably to, uh, you know, weeping over the fate of Jerusalem or the tearing down of the temple or of, you know, national repentance or something along with like that. I think it, it, it befits the appearance of these pilgrims. And so he's kind of sort of getting in with them. He's playing this act. And so he says, well, hey, well, come on into Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. So one of the things I think this, this seems to indicate is that they would not necessarily have either gone, certainly not would have gone into see Gedaliah or perhaps even stopped at the city. So he lures them in. It's not just that they show up at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so, I mean, I'm not entirely clear why um, you know, uh, why Ishmael actually targets these guys, uh, because he does go out of his way. The, one of the things I can think of, but I'm not really sure about is that, does he recognize them as being northerners and is he, are they still kind of harboring, you know, this long standing am animosity towards them? That's one possibility. I don't know if you've heard of others, but it, the, the text just doesn't tell us a lot about it. Right. I mean, there's no real, there's no clear indication in the text as to Ishmael's motivation. We can speculate on on several items, and I think some of the ones that you've suggested are are right on. And and maybe it is just a matter of Ishmael is just a a bloodthirsty, ruthless kind of guy, and he's going to take that out on whomever he sees, including these pilgrims, whatever their reason for coming is, how pious they may be or not. The point is, they're not military folks. They're not a, a threat to Ishmael's life, and yet he carries out this ruthless act against them. And, and perhaps, just to, to throw this out there before the break, that, you know, we're just seeing a picture, whatever his motivation is, we're seeing a picture of just how bad it remains in Judah, even right. after the fall of Jerusalem that these people that have been chastised by the Lord, it doesn't seem they've gotten it yet. And, and I think maybe we can, we, right. can, we can play with that a little bit more, come up to that a little bit more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO talking Jeremiah chapter 41 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 26th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 41 verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were talking about Ishmael and and what his motivation might be. The text isn't entirely clear as to what that might be, but regardless, it does seem that we're seeing a picture here of of what happens when people just refuse to understand what the Lord is trying to teach them through what's happened. Any any thoughts on comments uh, on that, where we left it off on the other side of the break? Right. I mean, this has been a very important theme in Jeremiah. If you think back to, for example, uh, Jeremiah 23, where he says, you know, woe to the shepherds who have, you know, scattered my flock. I mean, Jeremiah is pretty ruthless, but also honest about, you know, how the the leadership of Israel, specifically the kings, but anybody who was in leadership, really had utterly failed at, uh, at you know, taking care of the Lord's people because, they, you know, they treated them like they're, they're their own. And here we have, after the punishment for all that has already been meted out, or at least in large part, you know, Babylon's coming, you know, uh, you know, uh, pretty much run over Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. You know, we would hope and expect them to have gotten the message, but they, they clearly haven't because here yet we have another leader of Israel, Ishmael here, um, who's not doing any better, right? They didn't get the memo. Um, the, it is still, in other words, it's still one of the shepherds of Israel continuing to abuse a flock. In fact, not just, you know, abusing, but outright killing them, not just you know, this political rival, Gedaliah, but, you know, but his entourage and even these completely innocent pilgrims. And so in some ways, um, you know, they got punished and they learned nothing. I mean, that's, that's the short of it. Yeah. So in, in, in Ishmael's, unfortunately, the quintessential example of it. Right. I mean, the the whole text, I was mentioning this to you before the before we were recording this morning, that you know, the whole text has a, a certain feel like the book of Judges does. And, and, you know, in those last couple of chapters of the book of Judges, it, you get that refrain that this is what it's like when everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And, and in right. those days, there's no king. And you think about where the people of Judah are at this moment in history, and both of those things are quite true. And the right. the chaos that reigned at the end of the book of Judges is starting to take hold here again and they're going to consult the prophet jeremiah finally in the next chapter but at this point they just are completely ignoring the word of god and the the results are are pretty ugly there's a few more details that we can at least comment on briefly here with ishmael he's he's killed all these pilgrims other than 10 who apparently have some you know wheat barley oil honey some good stuff that soldiers might need so he spares them to take their stuff and then we're told that he dumps their bodies the dead bodies into this cistern and he takes some other people captive any any final the details that are important to pick up before we move on with what happens to ishmael after all this right just as a, a quick more historical note this uh this cistern i believe i think was uh was dug by asa you know uh what, like 150 to no, like 300 years earlier. And so, I mean, this is a really, uh, you know, a cistern is, is basically just a large pit, um, 
and uh, it was quite substantial, you know, in, in terms of size. And so he's just he's just dumping these dead bodies. But I think a couple of interesting, once again, biblical themes kind of rise up, bubble up out of this. First of all, um, you know, not to Ishmael's credit, but he spares these guys not out of mercy, but because of what they're offering him. And I think here we've got a hint at the biblical theme of ransom, which, you know, is all over the Bible, of course, but if they're spared, you know, because of the cost of their lives. And essentially the cost of their lives is the stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey that they have in their own fields. And so, you know, here's, this is the price essentially on their heads. Now, of course, ransom in this case is actually a bad deal but when when jesus comes and ransoms us you know it's it's ransom unto salvation rather than you know rather than uh essentially uh buying them off here uh but uh what did you want to follow up on that no keep keep going keep going okay and then the uh i would also say another biblical theme that kind of pops up here is uh is of course captivity i mean in which Obviously, we're in the middle of a, of, a, of a larger captivity theme as the Babylonians came in and took so many of the Israelites captive. But here we have kind of this on a, a much smaller level. You know, Ishmael takes his own people captive, uh, you know, the king's daughter and all the people who were left at Mizpah. Once again, by the way, probably a little bit of a hyperbole. It's probably, the, you know, not all the citizens of Mizpah. I think it would be really unlikely with only 10 men to do it, but it's possible. Uh but probably, you know, the people who were associated with Gedaliah. Mm. Um, so, and, you know, people who would have been, he would have seen as being culpable for this uh, association with Babylonians. And so, so what does he do? He takes them captive. And so that kind of sets the stage for, well, who's going to free them, right? Who's going to save them? And so I think that theme we've automatically got all set up for this next portion. And you notice where are they going back to? They're going back to the Ammonites. They're going back to the other side, uh, you know, where, um, you know, it, it's, it's this great irony that, that Ishmael seems to be doing this, um, you know, in the name of, uh, in the name of Judah, but he's doing it really under the, uh, you know, under the authority and with the cooperation of the Ammonites. And so, so he's taking them into the into enemy territory, right? It's, it's Darth Vader taking Luke back to the Death Star. How do we put this? <laughs> the the way that you you're describing this, there, Pastor Johnson. I mean, it you you've got me hoping that in the rest of this text that something good is going to happen. You know, and, and I think maybe this is another way that we can look at a text like this is that we've we've seen, for example, Gedaliah gets appointed governor by the Babylonians, and there's a an almost a hopeful start to the way he he gets going. But then we quickly see how Gedaliah doesn't really measure up and, and he meets a, a very brutal end. Ishmael is, is reigning in chaos right now, but we're going to see it like you're, you're setting us up for it. maybe there's a, a savior coming and, and we're going to see someone who does provide some rescue, but we're also going to quickly see how he too is not the ultimately the savior that we need. Right. And, I mean, maybe that's just another way of, of thinking about a text like this is how as, as we're seeing some of these biblical motifs be repeated, we continue to be left wanting, left, left wanting more that right. we, we see that what we're seeing here, even in the moments where the Lord does provide a, a bit of respite or salvation through some figure, none of them quite measure up to the one that we're waiting for, who is, who is Jesus. I mean, maybe that's just another way of right. thinking about a text like no, this. No, no, no. I think you've, you've hit it right on the head because I think that's an inevitable problem. I think that, 
almost everybody seems to recognize at some point or another, but it's almost like you want to explain it away, you know, well, like, well, David, you know, he's, you know, he's supposed to be a Christ figure and he is a Christ figure indeed, uh, you know, but look at all these failures and, you know, so he doesn't quite match up. And we almost say that with an air of disappointment, um, you know, but I think what we, the way we ought to be looking at all of these, you might say, both Christological types, but also what you might call even just Christological hints, is that, um, you know, it always, it, it's preparing us to see the, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, uh, the previews versus the main event. And so that we can clearly distinguish these things because all of these other ones are inadequate. Right, so we're going to have a Christ figure who's going to come and save the uh, the captives, you know, a lot like Christ. But I mean, even to some extent, I mean, that's exactly you know Moses, right? I mean, there will be another prophet like Moses, but in this case, it's not that he doesn't measure up to Moses, but Moses doesn't measure up to him, right? And so I think that's really the way that we ought to be reading these things: is we actually ought to be almost um, really grabbing hold of the inadequacies of saying like we're waiting for something better we're waiting for the for the big thing yeah so the next the next big rescuer that is going to let us down spoiler alert <laughs> is, right. it comes and Shocking, we've, right? that's right we've met him before it's it's johanan the son of korea he was the one that tried to warn Gedaliah in the first place he comes mm-hmm. back into the account now beginning at verse 11 But when Johanan, the son of Karia, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Netaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Karia, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Karia. But Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs, whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Gareth Kimham near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them because Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. That was the rest of Jeremiah chapter 41, verses 11 through 17, 18, excuse me. So... Pastor Johnson, we've got Johanan. He comes back on the scene. He had warned Gedaliah about Ishmael. Now he comes to the rescue. It's a great pool of Gibeon. That's probably worth a, a comment. It really seems sure. that it's almost a, almost an anticlimactic kind of thing. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. there's really any kind of a battle, but just it's almost right. like Ishmael just kind of gives up and runs away. Yeah, I think so. I think he, he sees the writing on the wall, and it doesn't tell us exactly how many, but I would, the way the text uh, is written, it seems to imply that Johanan as, seems to have had superior forces, uh, you know, uh, against Ishmael, and he they probably just do, you know, hightail it out of there, and the, uh, you know, and they just, they cut their losses, and they don't even bother with any of the, uh, 
uh, you know, with any of the captives. But um, but you're right. You hinted about the pool that is in Gibeon. Um, if you remember way back when, um, when uh, when Saul and David were still kind of contending for the um for the kingdom, there was another conflict that happened at this very same location back in uh, what was it, Second Samuel? I can't remember what it was, but um that uh, I believe it was a dozen of Saul's men versus a dozen of David's men, uh, you know, fought there at the pool at Gibeon and David's men just trounced Saul's men. And it became kind of this, um, almost the symbol of the conflict between the houses. And so now here you have it in the very same location. And you wonder if, I mean, I don't know how much to make of this, but is this, uh, you know, sort of an echo of the line of Saul versus the line of David? Now, I, I don't know enough, um, you know, about Ishmael and uh, Johanan's, uh, you know, legacy, and so I'm not. I don't want to overemphasize that. But, um, but another decisive victory has sort of been won here at the pool in Gibeon. Um, and well, so, th- if, and that- if nothing else, I mean, I think that that the having that place repeated, which would have been associated in the minds of the people with a, a civil war type situation right that i mean i think it you know it makes sense that you would bring that up because here we have another sort of civil war whether or not it's exactly house of david versus house of saul i mean you you but you do have this idea that again to go with that theme of who's the who's got people captive who's the rescuer here johanan wins in the same way that David wins, I'm kind of putting those in air quotes, but you have, yeah, right. I mean, you, you've got, again, maybe a, an indicator of, okay, maybe things won't be all that bad now. Now, of course, what happens under under David and Saul, things do go pretty well from, from that moment on for David. Here, we're going to see things don't take a, a turn for the better. They, in fact, go quite downhill after this after this chapter ends. You know, again, another spoiler alert. But I mean, I think a mention of that civil war place is is maybe a, maybe that's kind of the idea, the parallel that we can draw, even if there's not necessarily particular overtones for for David, Saul, that kind of thing. Other other details in in this section that we need to to see. Yeah, just to note quickly that Ishmael does end up going back to the Ammonites, uh, you know, back to where his his allies are. You know, it, I mean, it, it, in a way, it almost seems to imply as much as he, pur- you know, purportedly was all for Judah. Where does he end up going to? Uh, you know, it kind of it it reminds me just a little bit of the overtone. Um, where I'm trying to remember where it says that where Judah went to his place. Is that in Acts chapter one? I think where it talks about uh, how you know Judas went and hanged himself and he went to his yes. his place. I think yes, I think you're right. Um, yes, yeah, and, and so I mean, it's not. I'm not saying it's an exact. You know, uh, you know, it's not like a, an exact correlation there, but uh, it just reminded me of that. And so he doesn't stay with his people. He actually goes to you know really what should be enemy territory. And so he's allied himself with the enemies as well, even though he thinks he's actually fighting against the enemy of Chaldea, which. Which, by the way, one thing that doesn't get pointed out here, but um, but the prophets are replete with reminding us, is that Babylon is indeed God's instrument, and um, you know, and they've already been told, right? You know, when you get carted off to Babylon, uh, you know, go and uh, you know, plant fields and start businesses and build houses while you're there. You know, I wonder if there's not a similar kind of implication for the people who are still in 
Judah. In other words, like, listen, these are your overlords because the Lord has, is punishing you with them. Just go along with it, right? Don't don't try to fight them. Um, I don't know. I can't think of a particular direct prophecy that says that. But is that implied, you know, the instructions to the Israelites who went into captivity? Is there also an implied cooperation with the uh, the Babylonians for those who are left in Judah? I, I think you're right on that. I mean, I think that fits very well with what we've heard Jeremiah preach, you know, throughout his his ministry, that when he tells, for example, in chapter 29, the he tells the exiles there in Babylon, you know, settle down there, you're going to be there a while. And and you combine that with say what he's been what he had been saying to King Zedekiah on multiple occasions. If you want to live, King Zedekiah, you need to surrender to the Babylonians. It's the ones who fight against the Babylonians who are going to die. Zedekiah, of course, doesn't listen, and Jeremiah's word is proved true. I, I think that all of that does point to precisely what you're saying, that those who do remain in Judah, which is this group that we're talking about, should understand from the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah that what are they to do there? They are to serve Babylon or, or to use maybe the, the place to really look would be the the false prophet Hananiah and the yoke right. that he breaks. And, and, you know, Hananiah breaks that yoke and says, no, you're not going to wear it. And Jeremiah says, well, that sounds great, Hananiah, but that's really not what's going to happen. And and Jeremiah says, no, you you need to wear the yoke of Babylon. And I, and that was, you know, one of the things that about Gedaliah that seemed so promising about Gedaliah was that he encouraged the people, right. look, I'm going to take care of you here. We're going to listen to the Babylonians and everything's going to be okay. And, and it seems that you know, how quickly they forgot that in the in all of this civil war type situation. I guess in all of that, I think one of the things you do see in, in this chapter and the surrounding chapters is how the word of the Lord that Jeremiah spoke does prove to be true. That it is, it's not these people in Judah who are going to be the ones who will prosper because these people continue to rebel against the word of the Lord. And so they continue right. to receive his chastisement. And, and while it's, it's tragic because these people are given every opportunity to hear the word of the Lord, to believe and to repent, they don't. And, and, and what ends up happening? Well, the word of the Lord that Jeremiah preached, that is proven to be true, which shouldn't surprise us, but maybe that's another thing we can pick out of this chapter. Right, right. No, you actually just made me think of something that um, when he makes those who have been exiled to Babylon to actually prosper, it's it's a pretty effective corrective to um, you know the Israel's idolatry of the location and the physical temple itself. And what I mean by that, you know the uh, you know the people will say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. We all we know that what they did is rather than than treating the Lord's temple as the location where uh, you know the Lord actually makes good on His promises, it became you know, the temple itself became the object of worship rather than the one who was worshiped there. But I think we also see a parallel issue with the Israelites, um, you know, in the actual promised land itself. They treat, you know, they almost worship the land as if it's the object of worship rather than the gift given to them from the Lord and the inheritance that they've promised, that they've been promised, I should say. And so, um, you know, if you think about it, then if they're removed from both of those things, and yet the Lord is still faithful uh, to them, one of the things that the Lord is teaching them in their exile in Babylon is like, listen, I'm, well, and of course, then you've got this this great vision of Ezekiel, but we're studying Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, right? But um, 
that, that number one, the Lord's presence, unlike the pagans, the Lord's presence is not is not uh, constrained or uh, you know tied down to the land, um, but that uh, you know that the Lord's blessing goes with His presence, and that these things are simply the instruments. The uh, the temple and the uh, and the land are the instruments, you know of. Uh, of the way that he comes to be present for their good. And so if, you know, so in other words, you know, by trying to defend the land, they're trying to defend the wrong thing. And, uh, and I think the people who are exiles in Babylon are in the best place to understand that then. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it does. I think it does. And, and again, we see how what Jeremiah preached in that way then works itself out as the Lord said it would. We, we need to pick up a few more details as this text winds down. So Johanan has rescued these captives who had been taken with Ishmael. Uh, we're, we're told they're soldiers, women, children, eunuchs, so a variety of people. And and you come to another one of these sort of now what moments. What what right. now? So, at, as and this is where we're going to, again, sort of the chapter division is perhaps at an unfortunate place where it just, you know, we just need to kind of ignore it as we continue into the show tomorrow. But but how does how does the what now, what are they thinking by the end of this chapter and why? Yeah, they're, pr- they're probably thinking that they're no longer, I mean, they're no longer safe. We know that they're thinking that they're no longer safe in Judah. The real question is, why do they think that? I think one of two possibilities are implied, and it could even be both. Um, On the one hand, they're not safe from the people of Judah themselves, right? I mean, because they are, you know, um, they are, uh, whether they like it or not, they are now sort of tainted with, you know, the... um, you know, sort of the imprimatur of Babylon, right? You know, they're too, they're associated with Babylon, whether they like it or not. So, you know, if if Ishmael's he's gone, but there's other people like Ishmael who are going to go and, and continue to threaten him. So they've got to get out. But I think also, and a couple of commentaries make this uh, comment too that um, Babylon now that now that Babylon's appointed governor has been killed, now Babylon's going to be angry. So so basically, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, there's more people who are opposed to them in Judah, but now even Babylon is going to be angry and is probably going to, uh, you know, is Babylon going to treat them any differently than the rest of Judah? And so, you know, so who do they go to? Well, the only place that seems safe at this point is going to be Egypt. But of course, the problem is I've, it seems like they are, um, they're neglecting any possible protection they might receive from the Lord himself. And I think, as you hinted, that's exactly what Jeremiah is going to comment about later on. And and what's perhaps the most amazing thing about that is that, I mean, in particular the way you're describing it, this is precisely the place where the people of Judah found themselves right before the fall of Jerusalem. Zedekiah had looked to Egypt for help. And, And there was a moment there in the Babylonian siege where the Egyptian army did come up Babylon had to break the siege for a moment and and Judah thought they were going to be safe. Jeremiah said, no, you're not. They're coming back. You need to surrender to Babylon. And it's, it's amazing that however, you know, not long removed from that here, they are in precisely the same spot thinking we're, we're not safe here. Babylon's going to hurt us. We need to flee to Egypt. And, and again, they haven't learned the lesson. Right. Yeah, why? Why is it they they were once rescued out of Egypt, right? In the probably in the quintessential act of uh, you know of salvation in the Exodus, and it seems like they want to keep going back. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's like it's like we never we never learned our history. Not that we're really any that much different. We uh, we tend to you know like a dog returns to his vomit and all that. So, mm. but uh, it's 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 a really tragic uh, tragic commentary. Right, right. And we will see in the next text how Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord into this situation. But but given the the patterns that we've observed both in chapter 40 and chapter 41, we can kind of guess how this account is going to go and and what's going to be their choice when it comes to this matter of whether or not to go to Egypt. Pastor Johnson, we've got about four minutes left on the morning, and, and we've talked a lot about biblical themes and just the, the chaos that ensues here. And, and we've talked about, you know, I mean, various ways that, that we see patterns emerge, that we see fulfilled in Christ it, in, a, in a completely better way and maybe in an unexpected way. As you reflect on on this chapter as a whole, and, and you know it's an unfamiliar text, how is it that we we look at a text like this and and we see in it Christ who is our Savior? Right. I mean, one of the one of the ways that really struck me uh, the most profoundly was this this theme of captivity and salvation, which of course we see all over in the Bible. And and as I was just mentioning, you know. First, this is, um, you know, we see this perhaps most notif- notably in the Old Testament in the, you know, the exodus from Egypt and the, you know, in the Passover. These are all, you know, they're captives in Egypt and they're saved actually by the hand of the Lord. And what's abundantly clear there is, is that the Israelites do nothing. They don't pick up a sword. They don't, you know, they don't have a shield. They just do as the Lord says, and the Lord is the one, right? You, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still, the text says. Um, and so I see in this a bit of a, we'll call it an echo here, right? And so, um, and so I guess in that place, you know, you don't want to read too much into it, but, but Ishmael kind of becomes well, let's just say he becomes the uh, the antagonist, right? The antagonist is—he's the antagonist. He's the one who, uh, uh, the one who takes him captive, and then uh, then Jahanan, uh, you know, comes forward, and he's the one who, uh, you know, who who rescues them from this. And you notice that, as you pointed out before, there there wasn't even really a struggle, which I want to get back to in just a little bit. Um, but it's entirely by Jahanan's hand. The the captives. Um, are in many ways kind of portrayed as being completely helpless and hopeless until Johanan comes along and actually, uh, you know, and actually saves all of them. And then, you know, it, it, uh, pulls them out of captivity. And he's, and as we noted, uh, the enemy, the enemy, get a lot, I'm sorry, not get Ishmael. He, he runs heading for the Hills and there's not really any significant conflict. Um, and it really struck me of how similar this is to the way that the Bible describes, um, you know, our, you know, uh, Christ saving us from the uh, the grips of the evil one. Um, I was especially reminded of this this passage uh, from Ephesians chapter four. And it's talking about the um, uh, the exaltation of Christ, and it says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He led a host of captives, which is exactly what Johanan did. Uh, but how much more than uh, you know, does Christ actually uh, do that when he, when he uh, not only ascends from the tomb, but also leads us forth in triumphal procession? Um, and then it, it goes on and comments about his, his descendant to hell, 
um, in this parenthetical comment after this in verse 9 and 10. It says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And we also have we have some uh, a little bit of flesh on those bones. So Jesus goes to hell, and what does he do there? This, of course, is one of the, you know, the ongoing you know debates of the uh, of the church. But we know we have this imagery in Revelation about you know Christ, you know, uh, you know, casting you know casting down Satan and defeating him, and uh, in that that ultimately the captor. Um, is the one who's who, who is defeated, and uh, you know, and we, we follow after Jesus, our Savior, and the one who uh, who reclaims us in triumphal procession. I mean, and that's in a way that that's the entire summary of what it means to be the church, especially the church triumphant. That uh, that our Savior comes, He redeems us from the hands of the evil one, only to uh, to lead us in uh, triumphal procession, you know, through this age into the age to come. So, uh, so yeah, there you go. There's your sermon for the day. <laughs> pastor Jeremiah Johnson is the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 41, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature there allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.